This is the Thanks for Sharing podcast, the podcast where we explore all things recovery, healing, and relationship. Remember to subscribe and download episodes in the iTunes store, Google Play, or on the Podbean app. And while you're there, I'd love a review. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Thanks for Sharing. I'm your host, Jackie Pack. And today's episode, we have a guest on. Uh, this is somebody that I connected on Facebook with oh, probably like six months, and we started talking about doing a podcast episode, and here we are doing it. And so our guest today is Regina Stone Grover, and she is in the metro, metro Detroit area in Michigan. Um, she has a master's in psychology, and she's also um, an activist, has organized some of the women's marches that have been happening. And I wanted to do an episode where we talked about, you know, I, I think I mentioned before on the podcast, I'm a white female, and I'm always interested to learn how I can be more sensitive, more informed, and more inclusive of uh, people who are on the fringes or minority groups or whatever that looks like. So I'm really happy to have Regina on. That's kind of what we started talking about doing a podcast about. And she's going to talk about underrepresented communities, oppression, and violence that happens. So welcome, Regina. Thank you. Thank you. It's awesome to be here. Thank you for having me. So as I was going to say, when we first started briefly talking before we, I hit record, you were saying that it was in your master's of psychology program that you really started to understand more fully oppression and violence that happens in underrepresented communities. Do you want to say more about that? Yeah. So in my particular program, they made it a very important part to include the multicultural component and recognizing the fact that we have to widen our scope and look from a, a more diverse and more open-minded lens. Because what happens when everything becomes very normalized is we end up becoming almost, I don't want to say programmed, but we almost become very familiar with things that are that are not very we get very familiar with a world that is familiar with us. Our environment becomes very appropriate for people who can walk on both legs or appropriate for people who, who don't have a pregnancy stomach. And, and so when they looked at that from the race component, it was very apparent the way that things happen for people who don't, who look differently from say somebody who historically gets an education in psychology, which often were and has been white males who grow to being older white males. Mm -hmm. I went to grad school probably 26 or so years ago, but I often have interns who are working on their master's degree at my clinic that I supervise. And Mm -hmm. it does sound like that's becoming much more of certain programs that people are getting educated in that that discussion and education around multicultural, uh, multi-diverse populations is something we have to understand. It is, it's very interesting to think that we've had such a rich history of not realizing that, whoa, not everybody walks on two legs, you know, not everybody, some people have families and they have to get around with kids. And so it's great that these are components that are happening now, but it, it really is kind of, it's very daunting that it took up until recently for people mm-hmm. 
for there to be questioning of some of these major exams, for example, the EPPP, which it has a specific scope. It was written by certain people for certain people and the, the effects of it because... Can you just, just explain a minute. You said the triple uh, E, right? Is that what you said? P? P tri yes, triple P. Explain uh, what that is. So the EPPP is, a, is the major exam to take for being for being a psychologist. All psychologists are expected to take it and to you have to pass at a certain level. And it's kind of the equivalent of like an MCAT for a psychologist. Right, right, okay. So it's a licensing exam basically that you have to prove that you're up to par. Yes, well, because the history of psychology is so male and so white, a lot of the questions are geared for people who come mm -hmm. from elite white backgrounds and they're not geared for the communities that a lot of people get into that that people of color and that people from underrepresented communities get into psychology to help right. so great that you have this information but this information is not going to serve you mm. when you're serving these people not anymore. It's, it's technically, it's obsolete. So when we're thinking about things like that and thinking about the way that the rigor of going through and, and building a degree and getting an education that ultimately is going to open all these doorways and pathways, you also have to think about the fact that you have to understand this knowledge that's not really useful. It's not useful for for impoverished families or people who are experiencing issues of oppression, because those are completely different issues than what are being explored on this exam. Mm. Yeah. Okay. So you may learn it in your program, but it's not necessarily going to show up on the test or like you may learn it and some people may get the license and never really apply what they're learning. Yes. Or in this particular aspect, it's the application is there, but the community that it applies to is much smaller now than okay. the communities that can now have this help. And so we see it. So we see it in a lot of ways, a lot of government programs. One of the most interesting thing for me is to see so many mental health workers in government programs, but a lot of times people from different racial backgrounds may not be eligible for the programs that are available. So you have a smaller percentage of those people who are accessible through state work and county work. However, when you think of people of color and people from underrepresented communities who are going to work, most of the times those are the jobs that they can get. So they end up working in communities where people are of privilege and they're using their education to benefit communities that they didn't never intended to serve. Okay. Any sense. Yeah. Yeah. And so is that, is that being looked at? I mean, it's, it's like the programs are starting to look at multicultural populations and saying, Hey, they need services too. Mm -hmm. But it sounds like there's still some systemic things that get in the way of that. Very much so, very political. So what we see is, you know, like, for example, the social work community has blown up and become very much aware of the fact that there are definitely barriers. However, what we're also seeing is that there are more grandfathered in people in a community such as psychology, where they believe that they are gatekeepers. And so they have issue and take issue with seeing women 
or people of color or people who are disabled crossing into their section of elitism just due to how they were trained and the way that training, the way that training still continues to hold to very old, very restrictive thinking and norms. Right. So some of the listeners may not be aware, but historically, typically, like even some of the fields like psychology, you know, is going to attract more white upper class males to that field. And Mm -hmm. they don't really like females going to that field, people of color to that field, right? Like, and they would think that you need to be more in the social work, which is kind of the, like in the trenches, so to speak, that's what social work does. They're above that. So (laughs) they don't go to the trenches. That's for other people to go to the trenches. So you're talking about just kind of that barrier that those attitudes have for people crossing even into the psychology field and becoming psychologists. Yes, like the racial attitudes that are very much aggressive. Uh um, And even the sexist attitudes that are very aggressive towards sure that even if a woman is in a PhD does have a doctoral is at a doctoral level that she recognizes that she still has limitations. Like there's only so far you can go in this club. (laughs) There was an article I read, I don't know when, a while ago that talked about how women with like a PhD are often referred to by their first name. Whereas men who even maybe are a master's level, they're referred to as a doctor. Men are more likely to be referred to, especially white men are more likely to be referred to as doctor, whether they have that designation or not. Mm. And females with that designation are still referred to by the first name. Wow. Actually, I had a professor who responded and who actually ended up sharing with the class that, yep, that was exactly one of her experiences that when going through um, years prior, when going through and and, and being introduced to people who are visiting the institution, um, Mm -hmm. yep, it was doctor this and doctor that, and oh, that's, you know, Mm -hmm. Betty or, you know, and it was just like, wow, really? because she was not seen at the same level. She did say that over time she had built a, a, a strong enough relationship, but that's, that's still common. <laughs> right, right. Okay, so let's talk for a minute about, you talked about like kind of this, the impact versus the intent. Yes. So say more about that. Intention versus impact is very important to recognize because at times we have a tendency to kind of minimize people Mm -hmm. Uh, and and in spaces where there is things can be said or things can be done and then when when that is spoken of and saying hey you know what you just did this um and you may you may know a fair amount about the impact versus intent but when, when it's called to the carpet, ultimately the conversation is, oh, that wasn't my intention. I didn't mean to do right. that. So right. there's a need to have um, a preventative attitude as opposed to having a reactive attitude. Right. Um, let's, be, let's be open to the fact that, you know, instead of saying and, or doing these hurtful things, let's just not do them. And so I'm not sure how familiar you are with the conversation because it has been a growing conversation, but it isn't a very big conversation that has, that I've noticed happening a lot. Um, But it's, it's very powerful to kind of 
my response is to humanize everyone. Can we just for a minute, take a minute and think about the fact that as humans, we like to be safe in our spaces. We don't want to feel unwelcome or uncomfortable just because we're there. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Or even to have that brought to your attention, right? Like, I mean, this is, I've had some um, colored friends and, and I, I don't necessarily go to maybe an event and count how many white people are there. Yeah. But my friends of color will say like, I'm keenly aware of how many people of color are in the room. Yes. And you know, that was something when we had that discussion, I was like, Oh, I could totally see the privilege that I experienced in that. Right. Just assuming there are going to be people like me. Um, Now I notice that like, if I'm the only female in the room or female at the table, I definitely notice that. Yeah. Um, But the same thing's going to happen with, color with sexual orientation. Um, those are, those are things that they have to be, those groups have to be more aware of than the higher up you are in the privilege categories. Yes. And, and that's kind of one of the biggest aspects is it's like, eventually if we all just took the time and started kind of peeling ourselves, um, kind of taking off our armor and -hmm. recognizing everybody can wear a label. (laughs) you know at some point everyone's going to have some sort of label or somebody's going to be able to be placed in some some category so if we just walk into situations and realize you know there are differences there are definitely Mm -hmm. ways that we can learn from each other let's figure let's build on the humanity and grow towards becoming more aware of ourselves and each other that eliminates any need to be aware of impact versus intent there's no reason mm-hmm. to kind of what watch your tongue and if something is said you can also say i'm human i apologize right. that wasn't you know i i'm still learning how to navigate these waters and right open when someone does say hey you said this or hey you did this as opposed to just saying oh that wasn't my intent I'm being open because your intent really I mean you can hurt somebody when that is far from your intention to do so right like your intent doesn't necessarily define how that is delivered or how that is received right and so I think it's important too if somebody says like hey I feel like that was a racist comment or I feel like that was an insensitive comment or a sexist comment to be able to say like you just said you know I'm I'm still learning to navigate these waters if you're if you're really clueless as to how that is racist sexist homophobic whatever it's okay to say could you could you help me understand that but you've at that point you've got to be willing to suspend your belief right because you thought it was okay and it wasn't you've (laughs) got to be willing to get into their perspective to understand that or you're gonna keep being offensive yes and and that's also it's okay like we we've we've adapted in this culture this uh, this need to say that um, it's important to be the expert it's important to know but what we have to recognize is we're always learning because things are always changing right. so it's okay to say you know I'm I'm still learning this or I just became aware of this mm-hmm. and that's that's a big part about learning differences and embracing differences you know i i don't know what it's like to be someone who is transgendered mm-hmm. however in having a relationship with somebody or being in a space with somebody who is open about being transgendered that's a discussion that could be had right 
Yeah, and I, I think the more you're open to, because I've had some people who will say, you know, I'm open to learning, but based on their experiences, I don't know that they really are, right? Because when people try to teach them, they just tend to argue back or point out why it's not, not what the person is saying, which continues to do the damage, right? And so you also have to be open, like you were saying, and, and be willing to admit that you don't know acknowledge yeah. that maybe you're uneducated in that in that field or that topic and be willing to learn and have somebody point something out to you yes it's not an attack you know right. to be honest there's there's no need to attack someone who's already come into a situation on a level so it's like so the minute that there's a defense then it's like there's a con the conversation and the ability to move forward gets limited because now instead of acknowledging, oh, I'm at fault, it's a met, it's automatically you're attacking me. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mm-hmm. help the situation. Right. Yeah. That, I think that's a tough one because some people feel attacked if somebody's telling them that they're wrong, right. Or that there's another point of view. Mm-hmm. I think we also live in a culture right now where everybody kind of feels attacked. And yeah. so that can be really difficult if, if somebody perceives you not agreeing with them as you attacking them, Yes. then that's going to really limit growth and understanding. Yes. And this is a time when growth and understanding is so important. Right. It's a fragility. And at this point, being fragile does nothing for anyone. It's not moving anyone forward. It's not helping anybody. It's hurting everyone. So... At this point, it's up to people who are in the situation to be able to have some understanding to say, I can't be fragile right now. It doesn't do anything for my children or anyone moving forward to be fragile at this moment. And if there is a wound, think about why there is a wound. What is behind the feelings Mm -hmm. that is creating a a wound as opposed to creating a bridge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that. I think that's hard to practice, but we need to keep that in our mind, right? As we navigate the waters that we're in today. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk for a minute about, you mentioned kind of recognizing different spaces, how spaces can shrink and when we're putting everybody in these labels, you talked about, right, how there's a need for a label. I mean, I always say like a label is helpful until it isn't. (laughs) Yes. Right. Like, I mean, sometimes labels, like if I'm meeting somebody and I don't know what they look like, it's helpful for me to know, like they're black, they're a female, they're right. Whatever that looks like, it's helpful for me to know that. Beyond that, I don't know that the label is super helpful because it doesn't tell me who they are or how they are. How do we connect? Mm-hmm. That's something that's really important too. Um, I think we have gotten very rigid about some of the more divisive labels, such as you know, black as opposed to cultured, or you know, abled or disabled as opposed to 
you know, uh, open for challenge mm-hmm. and willing to learn to learning how to navigate. Like these are these are all things that are awesome, actually. And we we encourage we're encouraged to do them every day of our lives. We're encouraged to learn how to navigate. We're encouraged to overcome our obstacles. We're encouraged to to learn more about difference and and things, different foods and different different areas, uh, dress, dance. We are encouraged to do all of these things. But when we put the flatter, more rigid labels on them, the race labels or the gender, even gender has become so something that really shouldn't be as restrictive as it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we, when we look at it in the other way, that's like, hey, you, you, like, you can find out that actually it's really awesome to be in relationship with a person who is transgendered or a person who is gender fluid because this allows a different perspective of what mm-hmm. life about but we and that opens up the world for us and we need to be more embracing of what an open world looks like because we're in a time when politically everything is so closed off and it's mentally draining everyone Mm -hmm. makes sense (laughs) right right I was talking uh online with somebody another therapist who is in Colorado and is transgender or uh gender like non-binary Okay. And she was saying, or they, they were saying, actually, I sometimes mess that up still, but they were saying that it would be helpful. Even like me, my pronouns would be she and her, mm-hmm. but I, you know, that's, that's part of me belonging to a more privileged group when it comes to gender. Yeah. And even me saying like she was, uh, they were saying, if you, you know, when you're starting your podcast, if you were to say like, hi, I'm Jackie, my pronouns are she, her, it just opens up space. Like even though yours belong to kind of this majority, like you're acknowledging not everybody is that. Like yours may be, but like you take for granted that yours are the majority, right? And when you just say, these are my pronouns, it helps those who have different pronouns to feel safe and say, oh, these are my pronouns. That is a wonderful conversation and a great example because yes, being able to say she, her, they, um, he, he, him, they, or just they, there is uh-huh. opens up the whole aspect of being able to say, okay, this person, and it's, this is still a person. Mm-hmm. And then it also limits a lot of other aspects of things like, like dehumanizing people because they don't want to stay in a particular structured, you know, gender expectation when that's not who they are. Mm-hmm. So, yes, being, and, and that's also a great conversation to have to start to kind of, kind of break open the conversations of how mm-hmm. to embrace connection. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a way, what I kind of took away, it's a way for me to say, you may be different than me and I'm okay with that. And so kind of, I, I can say that up front and pe- it communicates like a safe space, right? That I'm open <laughs> to differences. I'm open to somebody who has different pronouns. Yes. I, I think one of the most, most like when I really got shaken into realizing um, that my my uh, my experience as a woman was in the majority, and I was I've been privileged, is when I I was doing the vagina monologues, and mm-hmm. one of the young women that I was with was talking about how she doesn't get a period and she doesn't she she didn't have the regular experiences mm-hmm. or 
regular even right, <laughs> right. have the, the common experiences that we know. And that's when I realized like not all women have these experiences. Right. And so to, to kind of try to put this, this almost this expectation, this expected label on people that they go through these things. And we have these, we, we do have these shared experiences, but not everybody shares them the exact same way. And we do need to open up the space for that. Um, and the fact that we tend to be very hostile toward people who may be um, impoverished, or we may be hostile toward people because they have to because they have a disability it limits our us as well because it makes us see our world as very flat when really it's very very round and there's a lot of really important figures within it yeah i like i mean when you talk about kind of living in a more open world i mean i was thinking like i just don't know that we've ever done that as a species mm. wow do you think I, I don't think we have right like some cultures, because I, what I believe has happened, because, you know, in our modern times, we use, we use technology and we use growth kind of as an excuse to get smaller and to see yeah. things smaller. But if you think about the way that other tribes and, and tribal communities, indigenous communities have, have moved, they had people who were not considered a gender and right. they people who were not um they had ways of adapting for people who had specific needs we right become a mother there's been so much conversation about the village you know and how the village adapts to the children and and all the time and energy that's put into taking care of the children but if you look at the spaces that we're in now spaces for families are very limited and it's, it's getting a little bit more difficult to get around as a family because yes there's a demographic geared toward it but there's a community made for single people who don't have kids <laughs> So we have gotten away from a lot of the things that we have done that have empowered those changes. Yeah, no, you're right. I, I think probably tribes and different things that kind of live independent, you know, kind of, kind of belong to themselves. I think they have mastered that. But as the world has gotten bigger, yes, um, I think that's yeah. where it becomes problematic. And we don't know how to blend and we don't know how to combine and appreciate differences. Well, it's, it's really funny because there's so, since we've become so educated, right, we've actually have this perspective of, of the, the primal and the, the early ages. But then when, when taking the time to actually study and look, the primal and early ages really did have strong relationships with the human, the human ability to learn, grow, transform, go from being one being to multiple beings through family. There's just so much richness in earlier stages of living and civilization that we have worked so hard to deny relationship with. And that also goes to the root of the question as to why what what is behind those is it because a lot of those earlier stages were were browner is it because a lot of those earlier stages were not you know were not did not use language the way that we use language now like what is the disconnection because we do kind of need to connect with a lot of those 
the, with a lot of those understandings and a lot of that, that structure of how we were able to embrace our changes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's interesting. I was thinking just with the holidays, you know, um, both of my, on my mom's side, so my maternal grandparents, they were both Danish. Mm. And I was thinking like, there's some Danish things that I've incorporated like into our holidays, like foods and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And my, my one daughter was asking me like, did you learn this like from your grandma? Right. And I was like, no. Like, I, and I started thinking like, she was like, well, what, like what from your heritage, right. Got passed down food wise. Yeah. And I was like, I don't, I can't think of anything. I, I couldn't think of anything. Right. Yeah. And I was just like, that's so weird. Like, did they give that up for what? Right. Like whatever we eat now. Right. I was just like, no, I don't, I don't know. But I did start thinking about that over the holidays, just this disconnection from wherever my ancestors came from. Like I don't have something that's, you know, my brother-in-law is middle Eastern. And so he brought some of his dishes from his family. Right. Wow. His ancestors have been in the States for a while even. Yeah. But he had that connection, right? And mm-hmm. I don't, like, I was just like, yeah, I don't, I don't know what, I don't know where that went in my family. You know, that's a powerful, that's a powerful statement. Cause I was, I, I know over those holidays, there's a lot of people who are like, oh, I'm trying to survive the holidays. I'm trying to get through it. And a lot of that comes. And I think you brought up something that is very important. Cause I think, for, for me, um, my relationship with the holidays has come from a lot of hurt and pain. And so I've been trying to separate myself from a lot of that. And so it might be possible that that might also be, you know, our places where we have kind of disconnected from things. We might be disconnecting right. from some of the more negative things, but then in turn, we're creating other <laughs> more right things. So it's like, so maybe we kind of have to start looking at the root of things, but I do appreciate that perspective because that does widen it a, a lot. You know? well, it makes me, I mean, we know now, right, that we know that immigration is difficult and for yeah. them to integrate into their new society is difficult, probably made more difficult than it needs to be. Right. But it made me wonder. I mean, obviously, my my ancestors immigrated to the United States at some point, right? I'm not Native American, so they my ancestors immigrated, and it made me wonder. Like, did they let go of that to make the immigration process more rigorous? More, right. Like, I don't know. I don't know. But y- you wonder what is the story there? I don't know what the story is. Right. But there's probably a story. <laughs> there is there's so much depth into that process um and i appreciate you for for talking about that because i remember when i was in north carolina i was assisting with helping people um i was volunteering uh with the with the dumb party uh, <laughs> to assist pulling together and and what is it when you knock on the doors i was knocking on doors for people yeah yeah okay yeah it was interesting how many people i had come in contact with who were were like, oh, I, you know, I can't vote, but they were from Europe and there was no problem. They were not having any issues whatsoever. But then, you know, we look, you know, at the same time, there's this huge, you know, campaign going on 
about, you know, people migrating and the dangers. And it was just, it was so interesting to, you know, to, to some extent, I didn't think anything about it until retrospect, but it was really interesting to just kind of knock on the doors of people who are openly like, oh yeah, I'm not from here. I can't vote. Um, I've, you know, I have citizenship elsewhere. And it's like, wow, but because of where they're from, mm-hmm. there's a conversation about that. Yeah, that is interesting. Yeah, I've done the door knocking stuff as well. And it's always interesting to have, I haven't had really a negative experiences. I mean, some people were just, you know, like didn't want to be bothered. I get yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. But that those were maybe the most negative where they were just kind of like, leave me alone, take me off whatever list I'm on. Um, But it's always interesting to get out and just talk to people that you would never otherwise talk about and to talk about something like voting that we believe is kind of this fundamental right in the United States. Yes. And how much confusion there is around voting rights. Yes. Yes. I think that was a very crucial moment for me to, uh, again, (laughs) to be able to, to be in a place where I'm, I actually had a whole conversation with a woman who was like, oh, I definitely feel, you know, she had her very feelings about the things that were being said in the media. And then for her to be like, oh, you know, she's like, I can't vote. Um, She's like, I've been here. And, you know, I, she may have been on a visa. And I've, uh, the only thing I've heard is how difficult it is to get a visa. And so for her to be like, oh yeah, you know, I'm, I'm here. And it was just like, wow. So that process, even within itself, sounds like it's very layered and it's, it's made much more intense for people depending on where they come from. Well, or, I mean, you know, sometimes you see this floating around online, uh, the test that they have to take to be, uh, become a citizen, right? Yeah. I don't know that most citizens of the United States could pass that test. Right. Like, right. When I looked at that test, I was like, I have no idea about several of the questions, right? Um, <laughs> and, and just some of the process that people do have to go to to become citizens or like you said even just to get a visa yeah is pretty arduous and and much more difficult maybe than it needs to be yes again what what is that about what what is you know what is that about because i i mean i'm i'm familiar with um actually the, the interesting thing is it was graced over in my education so simply that it was just one of those things that it was like oh yeah well this is what happened you know there there was a migration and throughout different parts of history and a lot of people came and then all of a sudden it's it's this big issue that there's migration but people are still migrating when I grew up, people were constantly migrating, people constantly come and go. So for for this to be made this big issue is it's it's not just confusing, it's it doesn't make sense. It's inconsistent. Right. Yeah. And and but it's I'm also I also as I have gotten older have realized that it's it's happening as well in other aspects like in the medical community, some of the biggest issues in the medical community are the fact that women in general across the board are not being listened to. Are the mortality rates of women who are giving birth are actually increasing? Well, then if you look at the black um, indigenous person of color community that's even larger than where it is in the community of white communities of white women. 
And so it's like, so we also have an inconsistent standard of care for, for women in general, and then for women who are of color, who are going through the same thing, who we all get pregnant, we all give birth. And for some reason, the standard of care is just different. Right. Yeah. yeah, I read an article a couple of years ago, and I bookmarked it. But it was talking about um, gender differences in the medical field. And they were saying that most male-specific uh, procedures are reimbursed by insurance companies at a higher rate than females. Wow. So most doctors are going to specialize in male care, right, simply because they get paid more. Right. Which doesn't make sense, right? The female body is a little bit more complicated than the male body. <laughs> and so, you know, they charge more for those procedures, but they get reimbursed less. It was just a fascinating, like, I had no idea the problems in the medical community. I mean, I, I get, I understand, like, most things have been normed to white, male, heterosexual. Like, True. most right. investments, most medical things, all of that has been normed to that. But to, to just kind of read some of the details was pretty eye-opening. I believe I, it's probably, it, it probably was a daunting read. Right. <laughs> <laughs> because it's, it's one of the most... It's one of the most disappointing aspects of things because healthcare is something that is so important and it's really a root. It's really like a foundation for all pretty much every other aspect of care. And to know that the ball is being dropped for something as, and, and truthfully, our bodies are a little bit more complex. So shouldn't, you know, the science start with a woman's body and then, <laughs> and then learn how to kind of how to read and, and the fact that simple solutions are not being applied, it's very frustrating. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, and I, I think it does then require, right, like more females to get into the medical field. It requires more females of color to get into the medical field because what we know is things don't change until people are in those positions who care and will make it change. Well, and, but, and that also goes back to talking about the institutionalized, the institutionalizing of the oppression and the violence, because oftentimes there are, there are people who are like, oh, I'm going to get in here and I'm going to change this. And then they go through the, the aspects and the hazing of, of the institution. Um, a lot of us don't really see it as, as hazing, but I remember when I was, young and there was a discussion about the way that institutions work and uh one of my mentors our theater teacher was like they break you down to build you back up the way that they want you to be well essentially that means that they depro well they don't deprogram you but they break down your concept and understanding of the world to reinforce the way that they see the world so when mm -hmm. institutions are ran by people of privilege who are violent towards people who are oppressed, then that violence only gets taught and reinforced. And, it and, and say a little bit more about violence, because I know, I mean, for some people, we think of violence and we think of physical, right? Hitting, all of that kind of stuff. But violence is not just a physical thing. It's not. It's emotional, Vi verbal violence, right? Yes, violence is is like the expecting someone to and and you know I'm really good at understanding this, but but being able to break this down into the concepts is is a little bit tricky. So the aspect of the violence through oppression is the fact that 
people who are oppressed aren't just expected to be oppressed. They're expected to be okay with the fact that they're oppressed. And then there's the expectation is if you go into a situation where you're, where you are oppressed and expect to not be oppressed, you are wrong. So what we do with people and what we do to people and women, women in the medical care in, in medical care is an excellent example of this because as women, we go through these processes, our bodies change and we need health. We need assistance with our health. Then we go into the position or we go into the situation and the healthcare provider is rude. They're not listening. Oftentimes they speak down and are condescending because now, oh, and, and if you correct them, then they become fragile and offended and say, oh, now you're going to tell me how to do my job as opposed to listening to you tell them how you feel. Right. And so it's very violent because now not only are you in pain, but now you have to fight through your pain and explain to this person, actually, I'm sick and I'm trying to help you understand what's happening so you can and help. it's not in my head. Huh? And it's not in my head. Right. Right. Like I may not know exactly what's going on, but I'm not making it up. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm not just pulling this out of the sky. And so it's, it's very frustrating and it gets, ex- excuse me if you hear my husband and my daughter in the background, <laughs> she's two. <laughs> um, but it's very uh, restrictive the way that we expect people who are oppressed to embrace and appreciate appreciate oppression as opposed to fight it or speak out against it. Yeah. Now I thought you did a great job breaking that down and explaining it. I often like as a therapist, when I'm working with clients and I bring up trauma, right? Most, most of them are like, Oh, I, I haven't experienced any trauma, which just isn't true. And maybe we'll talk about abuse, right? I may say to them, like what you're describing sounds like abuse. And they're like, Oh no, it's, it's not abuse. Right. And I'm like, well, how do you define abuse? Yes. And, you know, they'll give me whatever definition they have that means they were not abused, right? And I say, my definition of abuse is anything less than nurturing. Yeah. Wow. Right? And they're like, well, <laughs> that's everything. <laughs> if that's the case, right? And I'm like, and I get that not all of it is reportable. Yeah. Right? Abuse happens on a continuum, violence happens on a continuum. And yeah. if you apply that to violence, anything less than nurturing, we're quite violent with each other, especially yes. if there's a difference. Yes, that's that's a beautiful perspective to put it in. I'm, I'm going to have to adopt that because it's it's important to remember. It's it's right now we're we're in this big aspect where people everyone is embracing self care. How do I take care of myself? And it's so important because one of the things I've noticed is it's not very well defined for people. People don't know how to define how I take care of myself. Right. And like this is we're so as you have mentioned we're so violent towards each other we don't know how to properly approach how I make sure that I'm okay Mm -hmm. Um, I really do love that that you've changed that scope and and kind of next to each other it's it's kind of (laughs) mind-blowing right and sad just very sad yeah So one of the last things that you had talked about wanting to cover is this, you know, kind of being self-aware of our own humanity is what creates space for humans. Yeah. I thought that was beautifully said, but can you expand on that and talk a little bit more about that? 
Well, that's that's one of the biggest things that I think we segued really nicely into was recognizing and being able to define not just what's nurturing, but nurture, but but you know, define how you are able to nurture yourself right. and how that works with other people in your community and in your collective. Because when we when we change our minds to say instead of saying, um, you know, here's one million labels and I have to be careful because I can't say this around this one or I can't do this around that one, it opens up the space to say, wow, here's a community. And how can we take care of each other? And how can we be mindful of each other? And so then you say, oh, you know what? There's a, there's a seat in your way. Let me move that. Mm-hmm. Or, oh my goodness, you have five people with you. <laughs> let's, let's find a space for all of you. And, and it's creating comfort and being welcoming and allowing people to feel welcomed and accepted in a space as opposed to feeling like they're a burden to the space. Yeah, which I love because I think we also need to start looking at community, right? How do we, how do we define community? Yes. Right? Because right now, sometimes we may define it as similar people. Yes. Which has gotten us into some of the problems, right? And, and maybe we can expand that whole idea of community and see how big community can actually be and what does that look like, right? And then, like you beautifully described, then we're caring for each other. Like, oh, you're a family of five. You can't live in a space for a single person. Like, you need to address that. (laughs) Rather than saying, like, you need to go find a different community. Right. Like, recognize that somebody different than us adds something to our community that we don't have. And if we can accept that and make space for that, we all benefit. Yeah. And, and it also feels nice to know that you're thinking about me mm-hmm. and it makes you feel good to know that I'm thinking about you and I'm, I'm willing to, to open up a space for you because that means that there's different energy, there's different opportunity in the world and it can, it can multiply and it can grow. And then instead of some, instead of just me thinking about my children and how my children are going to grow, you're thinking about my children and I'm thinking mm-hmm. about your children and their grandchildren. And so we, we end up creating a collective and connections through that collective, as opposed to continuing to kind of cut connections mm-hmm. as, as they are already. I love that. Anything you want to add before we wrap up? Mm, I would say that um, I would honestly say that, being more open to safe spaces starts with self-care and self-care mm-hmm. starts with self-awareness. So by taking the time to say, okay, this is me and this is who I am, but also stepping out and saying, but this is me who I, and who I am where I'm at. And this is how people are affected by me. That creates not just a space for you and not just a space for the people who are close for you, close to you, but a space for anyone who engages or interacts with you. I do. I like that. I, I do think that the more a person connects with them and the beauty of them, right. And knows how to care for that. Yes. Um, the more one cares for themselves, it's kind of this irony of the more we're able to then care for somebody different than me or somewhat similar, right. We're just more able to care and love others when we can do that for ourselves. Yes. And I, and I think behind a lot of the violence and the oppression 
is really this lack of acceptance for self. Yes. Yes. And that's, that's a scary thing, right? Like how much is, how angry at yourself do you have to be to do some of the things that people are doing? To project that onto another person. Yeah. 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 So it's about, you know, kind of cutting it off and changing that as, as soon as possible. <laughs> let's, right. let's just immediately step into how can I... a century behind here. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But yeah, so yeah, that's, that's pretty much my, my thoughts. I love that. Well, thank you so much. I'm so glad we connected and got time to do this podcast episode. And, and for those who are starting off the new year, this is something to put into your goals or your vision for a new year. If you don't mind me taking it, it can be as easy and as simple as saying, I'm going to wake up every morning and eat breakfast. And if you already wake up every morning and eat breakfast, looking at what you eat. Okay. I need to eat fruit or I need to eat. I was listening to a different podcast and he said, you know, that's great. If you're eating breakfast now, try to do it when you sit down. Oh, right. You're not in your car. You're not walking somewhere quick. You're not grabbing it. Like sit down and eat breakfast. Being present. Right. There's so many ways. Yes. I love that. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. At the end of this episode, I want to remind you that your story matters. Remember there's something meaningful in every chapter. Don't wait to share your story till it's finished. Until next time, Jackie. The Legal Stuff. This podcast is solely for the purpose of information and entertainment and does not constitute therapy, nor should it replace competent professional help. The Prayer of the Perfectionist. Nobody has time for perfection. We are pursuing progress. Help me to remember the only step I need to focus on is the next right step for me. Help me to remember that life is a journey. Help me to be able to separate all that I am learning from all that I have to do. Help me to remember that I am not alone. I can ask for help. Help me to strive for frequent awakenings, not mastery. I am enough. Amen.